himself as part of the answer to the question. God is still choosing, Paul explains. And based on God's choice, Romans 9, 6 says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. God has always made choices, even among the descendants of Abraham. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. And though they were twins, he made this choice. Verse 11 of chapter 9 says, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God made choices when the Jewish people began, and Paul's argument is that, Paul, that, that God is making choices now that Messiah has come. Some he has granted the mercy to believe, and Jesus is their Savior and their security forever. Others, the majority at that time in which Paul was writing and living, he has left in their sins. So has God's word failed? No. God's promises to Abraham have not failed. That's where Paul is going. For one thing, history isn't done yet. So the whole story hasn't been told in terms of what God is doing, and that's, we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 11. But also, there are Jews who, by God's gracious election, have found Christ. And they are the true Israel, the spiritual children of Abraham, who believed God. And they believed God as he did. It was common in first century Judaism, Jewish theology at the time, to believe that every Jew was entitled to salvation by birth simply for being a descendant of Abraham. That idea is addressed by John the Baptist, it's addressed by Jesus Christ, it's addressed by the apostles. It was a very common idea. Paul says, not so. It has never been that way. God chooses to extend saving grace to some. And that choice and freedom to choose is one aspect of his being God. Now, an accusation always comes out right away anytime you discuss election and God's choosing. God is not fair, or he's unjust, or not everyone has the same chance. And there's a first century Jewish version of that objection being answered by Paul in chapter 9, verse 14. Unfortunately, I think modern translations lose sight of the first century issue when they use the word injustice or unjust. Um, the New American Standard, which I'm using, reads like this. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. The word translated injustice in the New American Standard and, or unjust in the NIV is better translated unrighteousness. There is no unrighteousness with God, is there? Like the King James has it or the New King James Version has it. It's the word adikia in Greek and every other place in Romans where that word is used, it's translated unrighteous or unrighteousness. Jews seven times. And only here do they use unjust to translate it. And I think that's because Paul appears to be answering the charge of injustice as regards election. And that's the modern way we frame the question. That's unjust. Divine election is unfair, people say. But while righteousness is related to the idea of justice, they are not exact equivalents. In fact, righteousness, when used to describe God in the Old Testament, carries a more complex and much deeper meaning than simply conformity to some standard of justice. Which is what we mean when we talk about righteousness in a human being. We mean a person that's righteous is a person that keeps the law. But when you're talking about God and his righteousness, you're talking about something else. Something like that, but different than that, deeper than that. 
And since Paul is using the word righteous as applied to God, I think we need to consider exactly what he would have meant by that term. And of course, his thinking would have been informed profoundly by the Old Testament. You might have even noticed, if you read the Old Testament a lot, that the word righteousness doesn't always seem to fit the context. It, it even causes confusion in your mind. If you've ever had that experience, it's because in your mind, the idea that righteousness refers to God's justice, giving everyone his due, treating him according to what he deserves. It's, it, that's the way you're thinking of it when you think of righteousness. But that's often not what it means in the Old Testament when it's talking about God's righteousness. God is just in that way, but righteousness often carries a different meaning. And think about it. Calling God righteous should be different than calling a human being righteous, just based on the nature of our existence. Men conform to a divine law to be righteous. Well, what law does God conform to? See, God isn't under a law. There's no, there's no higher being that he's accountable to or higher standard than himself which he is accountable to. Moral law is dictated by the very nature of God. So God is not accountable to a law because he himself is higher than law. He is, law comes from him based on his nature. Law is not over him. Law expresses him. So righteousness for God is more like being true to himself than it is being conformed to some standard of rules. Let's look at those, um, some of those odd Old Testament texts. Turn back. Like I said, you've got to do a lot of flipping today, so get your little fingers going. Psalm 51. Psalms is almost right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 51 is that great psalm of repentance written by King David who was guilty of adultery and murder to cover up his adultery. It's a wonderful model for us, not the murder and the adultery, but the psalm because it's such a marvelous example of repentance and what genuine repentance really is. But if you get to Psalm 51, look at verse 14. And remember, he's confessing his sins. He says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will sing joyfully of thy righteousness. He wants to be acquitted of guiltiness for gross sins that he's committed and when he does receive that forgiveness he will sing of God's righteousness. Now if God's righteousness were simply dealing out to people what they deserve it doesn't quite fit does it? It just makes you feel kind of like well that's a strange thing to sing about. Why not sing about his mercy or something like that? Look at Psalm 143. And watch how the word righteousness is used right at the beginning. Another psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplication. Answer me in thy faithfulness, in thy righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight no man living is righteous. Now, again, just think about that for a second. Answer me in thy faithfulness. Answer me in thy righteousness because I'm not righteous. You see how disconnected that is? If righteousness simply means giving to every man according to his due, he's pleading with God not to give him according to what his due is, right? Based on what? God's righteousness. So he's saying, don't give me according to my due because you're righteous. 
So righteousness must have a slightly different connotation than simply meeting out what people deserve. Pure justice. Another one, Psalm 69. Toward the end of the psalm, the psalmist is praying for God to blast the enemies of the, uh, of the godly who are being persecuted. And in verse 22, he says, May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out thine indignation on them and may thy burning anger overtake them. So you can see he wants divine justice to strike at them, right? But then look at verse 27. Do thou add iniquity to their iniquity and may they not come into thy righteousness. He's praying for justice to strike them and he's praying that they not enter into his righteousness. So righteousness has to be something different than strictly justice meted out because he's actually asking for the opposite. So here, righteousness, of righteousness in God is seen as a saving mercy, not strict justice. And there are many, many such examples. If you follow righteousness through the Old Testament, you'll find that is common. In fact, often the Old Testament mentions God's righteous deeds and righteous acts and refers to times when God rescued the nation of Israel from their own wickedness and sins and the things that that brought about because of their sins. It is so much this way that some Bible scholars have defined God's righteousness not as justice but as covenant faithfulness. When God is faithful to his promises, that's when he's righteous. They say that's what it means, not justice in any legal sense, but God's faithfulness to his people. Well, I think that definition would fit the text we just looked at. But there are other texts that move you away from that strict idea as well. Word studies, you know, are kind of complex things. When you're studying a word in an ancient language, especially a language that's not used anymore, you have to look at all the possible references and bring in the totality of the meaning to really get the sense of it. Because they had a different culture, and obviously you know how words change over time. Bad used to be bad, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, when you're getting to etymologies, but when you're doing Bible study, you want to bring in as much as you can, information-wise, to look at a word and get the different flavorings of how it might be used. Look at Isaiah chapter 5 real quick. Now, if you're getting tired of turning, just listen, but you can look at it. Here you see God bringing ruin upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem for her sins. Isaiah 5, verse 13 Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude is parched with thirst. Verse 14. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure and Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry and the jubilant within her descend into it. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Then the lambs will graze as in their pasture and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. So here judgment is in view based on God's righteousness. That's interesting. But notice how God is described in verse 16. The Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. He will show himself holy in 
in righteousness. You can see the emphasis on God's glory in judgment. The Lord of the host will be exalted. The holy God will show himself holy. In fact, since God's faithfulness in mercy or in judgment can be associated with righteousness, the common thread that begins to emerge with the use of this word righteousness describing God is his own glory or his name or his honor. And that's how it starts to really connect up here. In fact, um, back in Psalm 143, where we were earlier, where we looked at the first two verses, verse 11 says, For the sake of thy name, O Lord, revive me in thy righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew poetry, it's usually a, a, couplet, a couplet, two lines. And the second line usually explains or furthers or informs the first line, um, depending on the kind of structure it is. It's, gets all complicated but usually the second line either repeats the first line expands on the first line or explains the first line so it says for the sake of thy name O Lord revive me and then the second line says in thy righteousness bring my soul out of trouble so for the sake of thy name and in thy righteousness are very closely connected ideas poetically speaking they parallel each other now this idea of God acting for his own sake is connected with his righteousness in several important passages. And God acting for his own name's sake is a powerful theme, driving God's actions throughout the Old Testament, especially as regards his actions towards Israel. And this is where our understanding of God's righteousness begins to really come into focus. God is the highest reality, and God is the highest good that exists. So for God to do right and be right is simply to be true to himself and to act for himself because he is the creator and the sustainer and the lawgiver and the judge over all things. And all things depend on him for their very existence. So he must be honored above all things. That's what's right. So for God to be righteous is to ensure that that is true. So when God acts, he acts principally for himself, as he should. They see, somebody would say, some person that doesn't understand or some pagan, and I've heard people say this, well, that's really selfish. God can't be selfish. God cannot be selfish. Selfish is claiming for yourself rights or privileges that are really excessive or out of bounds. Well, what right or privilege is out of bounds for God? Nothing. <laughs> Because all rights and privileges belong to him. All. All honor is due him. So for him to insist upon all honor being due him is only what's right. For God to say, you know what, all honor shouldn't be due for me. I'm just going to be real modest and let the other people in the world take over or run things for a while. That would be so wrong because he is who he is and we are who we are. And he can't do what's wrong. God can't be anything less than the center of everything. That would be out of bounds. Anything depriving him of the honor he deserves is out of bounds. So he is the center, and so must be the center, and insist upon his being the center. That's why it says in the Ten Commandments, God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his own glory and his own name. Everything that is right in the universe is rightly related to him as the one deserving all honor and glory and praise. And anything not related to him in that way is not right. 
certainly not righteous. So often, God declares that he is acting for his own sake, his own name, and his own glory. And if we are proper creatures, we should want him to do that and rejoice when he does that. So, God, sovereignly, because he is free to act however he wants according to his own nature, he made a good world and allowed rational moral beings made in his image a measure of freedom. Human beings, we call those beings, and human beings fell, man fell, and God chose to let man endure under a cursed existence. That's why the world is the way it is, that's what's going on right now. He chose this instead of obliterating everybody, which he could have chosen to do, right? Being sovereign and free to do what he wants. He could say, sin, forget it. We're starting over. We'll make hobbits instead. Why is he letting humanity endure under this cursed existence? To reveal his glory, particularly in this amazing provision called salvation. Salvation, saving rebels from their sin and turning their hearts to God and to true righteousness is the unfolding story of the Bible. That's what God is doing. It started with very simple promises made to Adam and Eve and became much more focused and narrowed through a man that God elected, chose, named Abraham. And Abraham was a recipient of divine promises that his descendants would be uniquely blessed and someday, through one of them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Guess who that one was? The Lord Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament is the story of those people, and it's not a pretty story. Because these elect people constantly behaved as if God were not God. They were, as a rule, not righteous people, except in the minority, a few of them. Nor were they interested in being righteous like so many other people. So God's relationship with them is one of constant strife in the Old Testament and chastisement and wooing and even pleading through the prophets. Now God did not have to put up with their stubborn, rebellious ways. He simply chose to do so in his freedom. He chose to make promises to them and to keep those promises and to pursue his plan of salvation. Salvation for people who didn't want to be saved and who couldn't care less. And he does this for his own glory. To display all sorts of attributes, things that are true about him, which we, as redeemed sinners, Christians, are most deeply touched by. His mercy, his compassion, his patience, his forbearance, his forgiveness, his love, God's righteousness is being true to himself in all of those things. Isaiah 46.13, he says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. So his righteousness and salvation are, are bound together. And why? Isaiah 49.3, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own name's sake. And I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 48, 
verse 9. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. God acts for his own sake. And for men like the prophet Jeremiah, this actually becomes a basis for prayer. In Jeremiah 14, verse 19, he's pleading with God. He says, Hast thou completely rejected Judah? Jeremiah lived at the time of the fall of Jerusalem, of course. Or hast thou loathed Zion? Why hast thou stricken us so that we are beyond healing? We waited for peace, but nothing good came. And for a time of healing, but behold, terror. But he's not pleading innocence. He says in the next verse, We know our wickedness, O Lord. The iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. Do not despise us, for thy own name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember and do not annul thy covenant with us. Just for thy own name's sake, because you made these promises, do it. Not because we're good, but because you made promises to Israel. The prayer of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 16. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. O oh my God, and incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and take an action. For thine own sake, O oh my God, do not delay because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. You see? God acts for his namesake, for his glory. His choices and his election are determined for his glory. John Piper defines God's righteousness as, quote, his absolute faithfulness always to act for his namesake and for the preservation and display of his glory. So, when Paul speaks in Romans chapter 9 about any suggestion of unrighteousness in God, God is not unrighteous, is he? It is with all this in mind that he cries out, May it never be. No, no, no. Of course not. That God chooses anyone for salvation is a wonder of mercy and grace. For no one deserves it. No one. When Paul says God is righteous, he means that God always acts according to the highest good, which is his own glory. And God is glorified in punishing sin, and he is being gracious to pardon sin. He's glorified in that as well. Both of those things glorify him. One glorifies his justice. One glorifies his mercy and his compassion. So as long as he is true to himself, he is righteous. One aspect of who he is is the freedom to bestow mercy on whom he wills, where he wills. He doesn't need to be merciful. He is free to be merciful. He could be fair, but he's chosen not to be fair. Thank God he's chosen not to be fair. 
Because fair, if we mean by fair equal justice, then if God is fair, we all get exactly what we deserve for our sins. Who's voting for fair? I don't want God to be fair to me. Do you want equal justice? It's a sign of human depravity that we believe that God owes us mercy as though mercy was the right of a sinner. It's not that way. Hell is the right of a sinner. That's what's deserved. And if God gives anyone justice, we say he's cruel because a really nice God would be merciful to everybody or at least to me and my friends. That's how many people think. Well, it glorifies God to display mercy, but it does not glorify Him to utterly forsake justice either. So He does give sinners what they deserve, except for some. He deems by His own free choice to grant mercy. Freely and according to His own will. Sometimes, even Christians criticize God's choosing, His divine election, God's choosing to be merciful to some, and they say it's unfair. God wouldn't favor some people over other people, we say. But of course He does. Look around you. God favors some people over other people. Even if you reject election and predestination and you say, man chooses, God doesn't choose, man chooses, God doesn't choose, and you insist on that, you still have a huge fairness problem. You have a much bigger fairness problem. Think about it. Does Osama bin Laden's child have an equal chance to know Christ as Savior as Billy Graham's children? Is that fair? It's not fair. Just where you're born changes your chances for knowing Christ. One person raised in the home of a saint has a better opportunity for a, from a human perspective to know Christ than a person raised by a wretched hypocrite, right? You can tie yourself up in all kinds of theological knots when you move away from the plain truth of Scripture because if you're going to say, I reject election based on fairness, you've got to explain fairness based on your own principles as well, which is just as big a problem. The reality is, fairness means justice and fairness means everyone goes to hell. So, don't count on fairness, count on mercy and plead for mercy. Chances and fairness don't matter much when no one wants to be saved by God. Which is what Romans chapter 3 told us, remember? There is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10 There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. But what if God simply from a gracious, compassionate heart, simply for his own glory and joy, takes some of those wretched people who don't want to be saved, and he saves them. He does all the groundwork. He becomes a human being himself. He dies a miserable death on the cross as a substitute sacrifice. And he sovereignly, by his own divine will, puts within those people a longing for him. And he awakens their dead hearts and pump spiritual life into them so they are born again and they believe and they receive Christ as their Savior and Lord and then they hate sin and they start living in a new way, a way that honors God. What if he does that? Does not, does not that abound to his glory? And when they all die, the blessings of Christ are given to them. And as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 says, 
in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So that you or I should be recipients of the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness, that should stagger us and overwhelm our hearts. And as it does so, he is glorified in his electing grace and mercy. But never let that thought, that that's not fair thought, creep in. Of course it's not fair. Praise to his name. But when people say or think that's not fair, they are not honoring God for his gracious mercy in election. They are accusing him. And that thought of accusation has within it the same wicked pride that shattered God's good world in the beginning. Because at its heart is a malicious idea that the wicked deserve something from him. Good. That wicked idea, I deserve. I deserve mercy. He owes me forgiveness. I'm not that bad. Not so bad as he and his law say I am. I deserve. That is truly satanic thinking and satanic pride. And it's the day you know you don't deserve and that no human being deserves divine favor that you can give God the honor that is truly due his name because you concur with him in his own opinions about it. Well, that's the introduction to my sermon on Romans 9, 14 through 18. Come back next week and I'll actually preach the sermon. Okay? <laughs> All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your choices. And for those of us here this morning who know that we've been elected because you've granted us the new birth, and our eyes have been opened to the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ and his grace, we give you great thanksgiving. And for those in this room that might not know, I pray you'd grant them the grace to know that the invitation is always there. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. That's a promise. We thank you for being a gracious and merciful God and for calling millions upon millions of people out of sin and into your righteousness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.